our unconscious mind is very similar. We can't, there are things that are out of our awareness, but not out of operation. We don't know what we don't know, or we don't know what we don't want to see. We're in the dark. And yet this, these unconscious conflicts, beliefs, ideas, unresolved trauma are creating the problems that we see. So if you don't get you don't do some emotional gardening and get dig out that root, you, nothing ever changes. Welcome to Behind the Binge, the podcast where we bring forth much-needed conversations about binge eating recovery and ditching diet culture. I'm your host, Marissa Kaimilik, a registered dietitian, nutritionist, and binge eating coach. This is our space to dive into practical tips to heal from binge eating, challenge your diet culture beliefs, discuss the nuances of intuitive eating, and empower you to recover. Let's start exploring what's behind the binge. Hey everyone, welcome back to Behind the Binge. Today, we are talking all about emotions and psychological needs and trauma as it relates to struggles with binge eating. And actually, today's guest is someone that I have known since I was struggling with binge eating. And this is Dr. Nina. And Dr. Nina used to, I don't believe she currently is still doing it, you know, with COVID, so many things changed, but she used to have a binge eating and bulimia support group in Sherman Oaks, California, where I used to live. And I would walk actually to her office space where she held this support group, I think on the weekends on like a Saturday or Sunday. And I went a handful of times before I moved back to the East coast. And so she was literally one of the only people professionals that I sought any form of support in during my binge eating recovery. Cause I, I've talked about my story before, but I struggled to find professional support when I was done, right? Struggling with my disordered relationship with food because I wasn't taken seriously, because I looked quote unquote healthy, because of the biases and stigmas around a binge eating disorder to where doctors that I brought it up with didn't want to talk about it. And so I was left without a diagnosis to my own, you know, ability to find help read books, et cetera. And it was a struggle, but I was very, very grateful to have found this support group and Dr. Nina was the head of it. And so it's really crazy seven years later now to be reconnecting with Dr. Nina. And I was actually on her LA talk radio show a couple weeks ago. And now I invited her to come on behind the bench to talk all about these unique perspectives when it comes to healing from binge eating by working on your mind. So to tell you more specifics about Dr. Nina, Dr. Nina Savelle Rocklin is a psychoanalyst, author, and radio host specializing in eating disorders with an emphasis on binge eating disorder. Internationally recognized for her unique perspective in the field of eating psychology, she is the author of The Binge Cure, Seven Steps to Outsmart Emotional Eating and Food for Thought, Perspectives on Eating Disorders, and co-editor of Beyond the Primal Addiction. She's the author of more than 50 articles about emotional eating, and her YouTube series, Break Free from Binging, helps viewers using an anti-diet approach. She also hosts the Dr. Nina Show radio program on LA Talk Radio. That is the show in which I was a guest on a few weeks ago. So 
Let's dive into this conversation. I know you are going to enjoy it. Before we just kick off the conversation, I will let you know that there is conversation around weight. There's conversation around eating disorder behaviors. There is a story told that includes a calorie amount that a client of hers was consuming in regards to the the binges she was having. And so there is a little bit more specifics around the behaviors, but all just for the sake of context of understanding the examples and metaphors in which we were speaking on. And so just giving you the forewarning. And if you feel like any of those conversations or language would be particularly triggering for you on your journey to heal your relationship with food, feel free to skip this episode and I will catch you in the next one. Let's dive in. Okay, let's dive in. Thank you so much for being on my podcast today. I am so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Well, ever since you invited me to come on your LA talk radio, I knew we just had to ignite this conversation deeper on my podcast around the topic of trauma and the psychological and emotional components of binge eating disorder. And since this is a lot of the work that you do, I thought there's, you know, no better person to come on and share this knowledge with the listeners and those who are struggling. So thank you so much. Well, why don't we just start there? Let, let's let let the listeners know a bit about who you are and what it is that you do. Well, I'll start by what I do and then I'll get to how I got to that because I think it's really important for people to know not only do I do what I do, but I know what it feels like to struggle because I've been there Mm -hmm. and my story of coming from where I was to where I am is important. So what I do is I am a psychoanalyst specializing in eating disorders, primarily binge eating and a coach because I see people all over the world. And I have a, the radio show, LA, Dr. Nina show on LA Talk Radio, where you were a wonderful guest recently. And I, I, I write books because I, and have programs. I, do, I, everything I do is in the arena of helping people heal their relationship with food by healing their relationship with themselves. And so, how I got here is when I was five years old. I suddenly and seemingly randomly looked down at my legs and thought that they were fat. But I got the idea that I was too big and that I should be smaller and somehow I would be better. And this was the beginning of my obsession with my weight and with food. And it continued by the time I was a teenager, every page of my journals are filled with numbers, you know, calories I ate, calories I burned the weight I was, the weight I was going to be. And I was always on some crazy restrictive diet and eventually my willpower would fail and I would eat the kitchen. And sometimes I'd purge, which is why I considered myself the poster child for eating disorders because I was in a cycle of restricting, binging, binging and purging, restricting, you know, rinse and repeat. And I finally went to therapy for anxiety. And I talked about guys and goals and dreams and fears. I was open with my therapist about every part of my life except one. I never told her what was going on with food. She had no idea that I was the poster child for eating disorders. No idea whatsoever. But by the time I left therapy, 
all my eating disorder behaviors were gone. And not once, not a single time had I ever talked about food. And people said, well, how is this possible? How did you get over all these eating disorders without with never talking about food? And that's because in therapy, I learned that food was not the problem. It was the solution to the problem. I started being nicer to myself. I started changing the way I related with myself. Instead of being critical, I was kind. Instead of being, you know, tearing myself apart, I supported myself. And by doing that, I came to realize that, you know, I didn't need food for comfort. I could comfort myself. And why at age five did I suddenly randomly decide that I was too big? Well, I was kind of a lively child and my parents are quiet academic types. And they were always telling me, you're too loud. You're too you're, 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 you know, you're too noisy. You need to calm down. You're so dramatic. You're so emotional. And so my five-year-old mind took that as you're too much, meaning I'm mm. literally too much. Yeah. And so that is what uh, led to my, you know, deciding that, oh, if there were less of me, I'd be good. And that's, those two things are what led me to want to be a therapist and help other people who are struggling. Wow. I so appreciate you sharing the details of your story because it gives so much context to the work in which you do. And I'm sure so many people listening can find parts of that story that they deeply relate to. Because even myself included, when you're like, yeah, I felt like I was too much. I mean, that hits the nail on the head for me as well. I had so much of this narrative of being too dramatic, too sensitive, too much. And it does bleed into so many different areas of your life. And so we get this idea from society of what an ideal body type might be. And so in some ways, eating disorders can manifest from trying to attain an ideal body standard. But in your case, and in many other cases, it sounds like, although it seems as though it came from the body, it came from an overarching message that you're too much and you need to be less. And the only ways in which I think a lot of times we feel as though we can control that or approach that is within our own body or food that we're with every minute of every single day. So I really appreciate you you mentioning that of you got this idea that you were too big and your body was somehow not normal when in reality it was more of it sounds like and you can correct me if I'm wrong that emotional component of I am too much and it wasn't about the body at all. Absolutely. But we experience, like even the way that we talk about emotions, they are big emotions. Oh, that is a, those, that's a heavy topic. That's a weighty issue. I mean, even our language, our vernacular in our society kind of correlates intensity with bigness yeah, or yeah. size, bigness. I'm not sure that's even a word. <laughs> yeah. I make up words all the time. So yes, with bigness, with being large and grand and dramatic and, you know, just overly, I don't know, whatever word you want to put in there. So I, as a dietitian, frequently get the assumption from others that I work with food and food alone. But we know food is not just food. There are so many emotional components when it comes to our relationship with food, especially with binge eating disorder. And so we're touching on it a bit here, but can you tell us a little bit more about the psychological and emotional context that can play a role in the development of these binge behaviors? Well, first I want to address why food, because a lot of people say, well, why food? Why is food my thing? One woman actually said to me, 
And she was serious. This is so sad. She said, why can't I be addicted to meth? At least I'd be skinny. Well, first of all, I mean, there's so much wrong with that. You know, I don't, we're not addicted to food. We may feel like we're addicted to food, which is a whole other, which is a whole other Thank you for saying that. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But maybe an eating addiction, you know, addicted to using food to resolve some kind of psychological uh, conflict. But our first experience of relationship is the relationship we have when we're being fed. We're held as babies. We have, you know, eyes looking at us and smiling down and we're being, we're just in this blissful, cozy, you know, being held in arms and that we experience while we're being fed. And so in our unconscious minds, we don't consciously think of it, but in our unconscious mind, food is relationship. So when we talk about comfort food, we're really talking about a wish to be comforted by somebody else. And so much of our language in our culture references that, like starving for attention, hungry for love. We use words that recognize that there is a connection and a correlation between our wish to be connected with other people and what goes on with food. People can be unreliable, unavailable, and unpredictable, but food is available, reliable, and predictable. And so it can be easier for us to turn to food than to people. Wow. Yeah. So language matters. Language matters so much. And this is something I also help people with when they say, okay, like I'm eating food for comfort, but okay, how does that help me? Like, well, because you need to learn now to comfort yourself. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I have treated, I treat men and women. I've treated people from all over the world, all backgrounds, all different ethnicities, everything. The one thing that people have in common is that they don't know how to soothe themselves. Food provides a soothing, it, it gives you, soothe. it does so much else. If I may interrupt myself, it also can mm-hmm. symbolically fill a void. You can eat until you're in pain and, 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 convert emotional pain to physical pain. It does so many things. But one thing that people do not know how to do is to comfort themselves. And that's where words really matter. Recently, a patient was telling me that she was looking in the mirror and she said to her reflection, you're disgusting. You're disgusting. And I said to her, like, can you say that again, but from an I place, like I'm disgusting? And she, she's like, yeah, I can't do it. It sounds so harsh, right? When we talk, just something as simple as talking to ourselves from a pronoun, second person pronoun, you, is often very critical. And when we're critical to ourselves, we feel terrible. When we feel terrible, we go to food for comfort. And that's why really changing the way you talk to yourself, the way you respond to yourself can be so, so important. That's what I learned when I was in therapy. That's what changed my relationship with food was really turning my inner critic into a friend. A hundred percent. And I know you mentioned in your book that I read, Food for Thought, of a story of sort of, I think it was a past client who had left a traditional eating disorder recovery center that maybe didn't put as much of the emphasis on those emotional and psychological needs. And although the, you know, food 
had like the eating disorder symptoms had resolved or had diminished, that negative narrative, the negative self-talk, the guilt, shame, hatred, obsession, like still remained. And so I'd love to talk about how you see just approaching the food can become a barrier for that long-term remission from, from binge eating. It's a freaking disaster. <laughs> That's it's, it's, it is. It, okay. So here's how I see it. It's like plucking a weed and thinking it is not going to grow back because you can't see the weed anymore. I've had this happen with many, many people. I think this, the person you're talking about had been anorexic and she had gained weight in this facility and they were like, okay, you're at a good weight. You're good. Off you go. Yeah, like awesome. It's like when it's, you, you've met the weight standard, you've, you've got to whatever weight, like clinical number that they're seeking, but we're not just a set of data points. We're complicated. And when we live in a society that values one body over another, and then to be sent out into that world again, without addressing all of those underarching fears and shame narratives and honestly trauma of living in a bigger body that can just perpetuate the cycle even further. Exactly. She And what she said was, I am still, I feel just as bad about myself. I feel just at, I, you know, nothing changed. My weight changed, but nothing changed. So I, again, going back to the weed, weed root analogy and why I like this so much is that we need to get to the proverbial roots that create the weed, the behavior, and that those roots are hidden from us. We can't see them, but we can discern their presence because we see the weeds and our unconscious mind is very similar. We can't, there are things that are out of our awareness, but not out of operation. We don't know what we don't know, or we don't know what we don't want to see. We're in the dark. And yet this, these unconscious conflicts, beliefs, ideas, unresolved trauma are creating the problems that we see. So if you don't get, you don't do some emotional gardening and get dig out that root, nothing ever changes. And that's why people will say they've been to 10 different treatment programs. Nothing ever changes. Exactly. Because it's just so surface level, or maybe they get a little bit underneath, but not, not really. And understanding that can be profound. Let me give you an example. This is an extreme example, but it really highlights this, which is, again, you'll be familiar with this. I talk about it in Food for Thought. This woman who had been, had a history of eating disorders. She had been normal weight and suddenly she had a fight with her mother. And suddenly she started gaining weight. And it was like she was gaining weight in front of my eyes. Every time she came into the office, she was bigger. And she would say things like, I, I had like 10 calories and they were oh, 10 cookies and they're all 135 calories. And everything she had was like 135 something. And I, and, and she was talking about her mother and how she felt so distant from her. And I, and I said, how much does your mother weigh? 135 pounds. You're kidding. We think that means nothing. Oh my gosh, that's not a coincidence. So what she, and she also said, and this is important, she said, I'm, I, th I feel like I'm going to keep gaining weight until I gain like 135 pounds, right? So unconsciously, and again, this is an extreme, but I want to point mm -hmm. out the power of the unconscious. Unconsciously, she felt so separated and, and apart from her mother 
and she was a woman in her twenties. I mean, it was, she was not a kid. She, but she was, she had always had this complicated relationship with her mother by gaining 135 pounds, eating foods, by the way, that her mother liked, but she didn't like, she could symbolically kind of wear her mother on her body and they would never be separated again. Consciously, logically, that's like really weird. Psychologically, it makes sense. So it's not logical, it's psychological. And you want to look at, well, what, you know, what is going on that is causing the behavior? If you only focus on the behavior, nothing will change. Mm-hmm. So it's like the binges were serving the purpose of of keeping her safe from the emotional pain of actually recognizing the distance that she was having from her mother. Exactly. Like it was her way of mastering the distance. Her mother could never reject her if she had 135 pounds extra on her that were created by her eating foods that her mother liked and she hated. Mm-hmm. Really interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. And these patterns in which we see, especially where the the binge is coming from a place of emotional safety, like we may not innately recognize that the binge eating is not just about finding the comfort, but about that like deeper emotional safety and and like a, a true like trauma response. So I'd love if we could segue into talking about the role trauma plays in the like perpetuate in perpetuating these binge eating cycles. Absolutely. And that's a great question because when the word trauma comes up, what most people say is, well, I wasn't traumatized. You know, I wasn't like, you know, they'll say, well, I wasn't like, like raped or sexually abused or I wasn't. You think of the physical. It was a big T trauma is it's like a a butcher knife to your heart. Like it's one big, terrible incident that scars you. And people will say, well, I wasn't traumatized because nothing like that happened to me. But there are two kinds of trauma. So there's the big T, one terrible incident that happens to you. And then there's the little T trauma, which is like a thousand small cuts. And a thousand small cuts can be just as painful and long lasting and traumatic as the big one time trauma. And a thousand, 10,000 cutting remarks can be extremely, extremely painful. And what happens is we internalize the way that we are treated. Example of that, I was, I was at a, a park with my daughter once and she was off playing with her friends and there were these two little kids, like, like toddlers, and they're playing in the sand and they're having a great time. And suddenly, little boy, little girl, and suddenly the little boy gets up and he runs off with a girl's shovel and she starts crying. Of course, who hasn't been there? Little dude leaves you alone, takes your shovel. So <laughs> she so she starts crying and her mom comes running up like with her little diaper bag, running up like she's looking in the diaper bag and she's, she's all like, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. It's okay, don't cry. Like panicked, right? So anxious. And of course the little girl's crying and the mom says, don't cry here. And she produces a cookie out of the diaper bag and says, here, have a cookie. Now on the surface, this is not a traumatic event. However, what that little girl internalized was that when you are sad and you want to cry, don't cry. But if you just can't stop yourself from crying, a cookie will take it away. 
So we internalize, that's not necessarily an example of trauma, but an example of how we internalize the way we are treated. When, so if we are criticized repeatedly, that's traumatic. And then we criticize ourselves and then we feel bad and you cannot simultaneously criticize yourself and support and encourage yourself. Those things cannot happen simultaneously. So we turn to food for comfort, distraction, mm -hmm. or something else, or to express pain or so many different different things. And so, mm. so traumatic experiences become that were relational become then between parts of ourselves or another example. Cause I think examples are really the best way to. Yeah. I love examples and metaphors. I, that's like all I speak in. <laughs> so this was a woman who was always told you have such a pretty face. And if you would just lose weight, the men will be lined up around the block. Oh. Well, people would say to her, so she, but she wouldn't lose weight, right? She would not lose weight. And people would say, you know, you don't have to lose weight to, to, to date. Like there are guys who are going to like you as you are. No, no, no. I have to lose weight before I go on a date. It's just too mortifying to imagine being naked with somebody. Like, no, I have to lose weight. I have to lose weight. I have so to much shame weight. around it. So much shame. But she wouldn't lose weight. And in fact, when she did lose weight without realizing it, she panicked and, and mm. couldn't gain the weight faster. So is that about like not addressing the emotional needs underneath yes. of those quote unquote excuses of like, oh, I'm just not going to date because I haven't lost weight, blah, blah, blah. But then when she was actually faced with, oh, there's no more quote unquote excuse not to date. Ah, what do I do? Because there's all this pain resurfacing. Yeah. Well, Actually, what happened was, what we discovered was that her mother and her stepfather had this relationship that was like straight out of the 1950s. Like mom got an allowance from her stepfather, from her uh -huh. husband. She couldn't make a decision without consulting him. She was like a 1950s housewife in the 80s. And this was so horrifying to my patient. And she presumed that relationships mean that you give up your sense of self, your identity, you're going to be subsumed by the needs and wants of someone else, you're going to be controlled. And who wants that? So she kept herself from dating, which could lead to being in a relationship, which could lead to being in her mind controlled. Even though she intellectually knew not all relationships are like that, there was such a dread and horror and fear of it that that what she what she what she feared was stronger than what she knew and so she was protecting herself from getting in a relationship and losing her identity yeah it's safety it's safety but we're not even able to tap into what is behind the binge haha <laughs> the name of my podcast because <laughs> the binge eating it it feels as though it's connecting us to something to keep us safe, but really it's further disconnecting us to what's truly going on underneath the surface. And so I think this is what makes, you know, binge eating recovery very complicated because binge is trying to comfort or keep us safe from pain, but actually is pulling us further away from connecting to the needs that are underneath the surface that are still not being met by the food. And so how do you help navigate helping someone to to connect to these these feelings and needs 
so that they can translate this pain so they understand like what is really going on when you know the the food is disconnecting you know do you know what i'm saying like it's almost like a cycle of like we're trying to connect and food is we think food will meet that need but it's actually disconnecting us further it's like it's almost like you don't know how to get out of that how do you help someone begin to deepen that connection to what's really beneath the surface well i i help them translate their body language in a different way. Often people will say, oh, instead of saying I was so mad or I was so upset, they'll say, oh, that just made me sick to my stomach. That just gives me a stomach ache. That makes my head hurt. They'll reference their bodies instead of talking about emotions. And so we start really by looking at, well, what is your body telling us? What, really interesting. I was talking about this a long time ago and some show. I don't remember. Maybe it was my own show. <laughs> and I was talking to someone who ha had migraines and I suggested that perhaps she'd had all the medication, she'd gotten checked out, medication didn't work for her. So when things like this happen, when you have a physical symptom, but there's no physiological reason or medication doesn't work, that's when we look at a psychological motivation. And I suggested that maybe there were some thoughts that she had that were so painful, she couldn't think them. But the location of her thoughts, right, her head, was experiencing the pain. Someone wrote me a few years after that and said that they actually cured their migraine by thinking about what's painful to think about. Or wow. someone else had, she had such bad back problems, she had to, she was going to have exploratory surgery. And I had a, oh yeah. And I had a feeling like, no, there is an emotional component to this. So we looked at, I said, please just do this work for six months. And if your back is still the same in six months, have the exploratory surgery. But I really think that it's something is burdening you that you're not the brain is so powerful. And needless to say, she did not have her exploratory surgery. And she was wow. so compromised. She had to take six weeks off of work and couldn't even function, couldn't get it. But it was her body was expressing what her mind could not. So as mm. we start giving voice to that and also honoring what we feel, we live in a society that says, don't have feelings, you know, oh, you know, you're, you're, scared, be strong, fight. Don't, don't give in to fear. You're angry. Oh, you're an angry person. You're sad. You must be depressed. Take an antidepressant. You're anxious. There's a pill for that too. Obviously some of us do benefit from medication, but like with all these prohibitions against natural human emotions, we've learned not to, to, to process them and to speak them. So we've learned to stuff them. Mm -hmm. And part of it is translating. What is your body saying? Yeah. You know, what is it that your mind can't think? What is the unthought thought? Let's yeah. <laughs> let's think it and let's process it and let's normalize the feeling and validate and acknowledge it mm -hmm. instead of just trying to tell yourself like you shouldn't have these feelings or it's not right. so bad or I've seen I've seen the power of feeling your feelings in myself and both and also in my client work, I actually have a client right now who, you know, we were working through a lot of the body image shame and a lot of the quote unquote discomfort that felt like a physical discomfort, but it was a very deep rooted emotional discomfort with body changes. And she was like, well, I'm doing all the coping. Like I'm doing the meditation. I'm going for walks. I'm doing the, 
you know, listening to positive music and positive affirmations, but like, I still keep getting these, like, these just horrible feelings when I look in the mirror, put my clothes on and I'm like, because you're coping in a way that that allows you to still get by in your day-to-day life, but you're not letting your emotions come through. And like, you're not feeling them and crying and getting mad or, or just letting yourself sit in it enough to fully understand what's happening. It's like that stress response comes on and she's like almost avoiding it by, oh, doing the meditation or the walk in like a different way that wasn't, you know, bringing her into her body. But once she finally, she actually got an injury and was almost like forced to do nothing. And it gave her the opportunity to feel her feelings. Once she was able to really feel her emotions, it was like her healing journey really took off. And so by being able to, to feel your feelings. And I think first comes translating them, like understanding them, you know, that's when we know sort of that next step to take, I'm, I'm sure. And I have actually a quote from your book that I want to read. That's sort of about this. And you said, by translating the language of the body into words, the fears, wishes, defenses, and conflicts that lie beneath become available for working through. Patients are able to understand themselves on a deeper level, creating a shift in the way they relate to themselves and others and obviating the use of the eating disorder behavior. Yeah. Yeah. I I just want to say one thing about this positive thinking. Positive thinking is, is often very detrimental because it's like a way of being nicely dismissive to ourselves. And I have an example of how I absolutely messed up with my daughter with the, and my other daughter came to me and she said that she she had skinned her knee and she was saying oh mom it hurts it hurts so much and i did everything wrong i said oh it's not that bad it could have been worse let's let's just put a bandage bandage on it like it's good you're good and she's like my mom it hurts it hurts it hurts and she's crying and crying and i realized oh i am doing that thing i tell people not to do i'm dismissing her pain her physical pain and so i said you know actually now that i look at it that does look bad that looks like it really hurts and she stopped crying and she's like, yeah, it really hurts. I said, yeah, I bet it really hurts. And she's like, yeah, let's put a bandaid on it. So why do I share this story? Because it's analogous to emotional pain. If someone's in emotional pain and you're like, oh, but here's all the reasons, it's not that bad and it could be worse. And here's all the reasons why you shouldn't feel this way. It's dismissive. But if you say, yeah, that hurts. If you validate it and acknowledge it, and you, you could do that for yourself. We have to do that for ourselves. We go right to, hey, look on the bright side. When first we have to say, oh, this sucks. This is difficult. This is hard. I hate this. Ugh. Men, we can kind of encourage and, and, and reassure ourselves. But it's so important because we have, a, we have a whole country full of people who are positive thinking themselves into you know, feeling worse because then you don't feel better. Right? And, and you start not to believe your own pain because you've been told it's not true. Exactly. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And I think that's the power of taking back the freedom of autonomy in your own body when you release all of the diet rules and all of the expectations and, and norms from others and ideals of like who you should be from others. And you take back that autonomy 
to live defined by your own values, you're also taking back the ability to believe yourself. Like when you skin your knee and it hurts, you can be like, that hurts. Someone's like, that's not that bad. It's like, no, it is. I this, this hurts, right? And then, you know, that just, I think, deepens that connection as well to where you don't have to find yourself avoiding or um, seeking comfort in other things because you're able to provide it for yourself because you believe yourself. And also it means that when you feel bad, you're able to respond to yourself instead of just like sit in yucky feelings and try to escape them eventually with food or whatever. You, you have to be able to, we have to learn how to respond to ourselves. And that's how we respond to ourselves. We have to validate, acknowledge, and reassure ourselves. That's comfort in words. Yeah. yeah. And that helps us transition into more of that like validating positive thinking where you're almost holding two things at once of like, yeah, this really hurts. This really sucks. And I'm working on healing it or, and I know that there's, there's better ahead for me, et cetera. Like I know I'll get past this moment. So it's like validating, encouraging yourself that, you know, you, you absolutely have permission to feel this way and feel this pain and you should honor that. And holding on to that like grounding hope of like, I'm going to get past this and it's not forever. And I have the ability to, to move through this, whether it's as simple as a, a skinned knee or it's as, you know, deep and traumatizing as like, you know, your struggles with body image and food. Right. Yeah. So I want to, I want to go in one kind of final direction based on something that you said, oh, you were talking about the way we respond to our emotions. So it, it reminded me of the ways in which we respond to binge eating. We've talked about a lot of our emotional pain and, and trauma and the ways in which food has given us a sense of safety or comfort that can help to like remove our, our, really approaching that fear or shame or whatever feelings are beneath the surface from other scenarios. But what about when then we binge as our way to seek that comfort and that leads to further guilt and shame and it just sort of adds fuel to the fire. Can you talk a little bit about that and breaking that guilt shame cycle that that comes as a result of the binge? Yes. So guilt is feeling bad about something you did or didn't do oh, I feel bad. I shouldn't have eaten that extra piece of pizza or whatever. Like I feel bad. Shame is feeling bad about yourself. I ate that, I ate that pizza and now I hate myself and I'm worthless. So one of the things that I tell people is, look, we're going to be detectives. We're not going to look at your binge behavior as the problem. We're going to look at, at, look at it as the solution to a problem that you may not be able to see. And detectives don't go, oh, that's a disgusting clue or that's a weird clue. Detectives say, huh, that's really interesting. And so I invite people to say, instead of, oh, I can't believe I did or ate or whatever, that's looking at the, the binge as the problem. But to say, okay, let's be curious, not critical. What problem did that solve for me? Is it Am I converting emotional pain to physical pain? Am I symbolically filling a void? Am I turning to food for comfort? Am I focusing on this so I don't get mad at my partner or think about something else in my life I don't want to think about? What is it that this is doing for me? Let me look at it that way. And that mm -hmm. is a really powerful 
tool to be able to focus on not what you are eating, but why. What is eating at you that causes you to binge instead of the behavior? And when you can do that in form of, um, like I said, a more curious, kind, understanding uh, perspective, the shame is mitigated because you're now you're interested in yourself, and it's not about what you ate. It's about what what's going on within your conflicts, your emotions, whatever it is that that, that binge resolved. That's the focus. I love that. So sometimes a barrier that I my clients face when they're working with me is coming into this being like, I'm an emotional eater and approaching it straight away from that emotional lens of like what I'm seeking comfort in food. What is the comfort, you know, coming from? Like, what is that need coming from? And how is the food seeking to serve that? And then as my dietitian from my dietetic lens or as a dietitian from my dietitian lens, I recognize when the physical needs aren't being met, when someone's genuinely not eating enough to meet their basic needs yet, they're still dieting, restricting, still stuck in the deprivation cycles or subsequent like compensation for their binge eating behaviors. They're not really able to tap into that curiosity or compassionate lens or regulate their emotions because their physical needs are not being met as it is. And so if it's the circumstance where someone is is still dieting and restricting, can, can you see any relation between someone struggling to meet those psychological or emotional needs or can someone resolve that? behavior while they're still dieting, even with the psychological factors being addressed. Absolutely. Cause it's not either or, and I, I, I don't think I have met a single person who's walked into my room or zoom room now and said, <laughs> I'm ready to give up dieting. No, everyone is terrified to give up dieting. They are go hand in hand. Yeah. Well, they're, t- they're terrified of what will happen. I'm like, okay, if you have to diet, diet, but let's like, what but but let's keep an eye on like how is deprivation related to what you're eating you know how is are you feeling a sense of control in your life because you're have this control over your diet what's it like to have a piece of paper or an app or something tell you what to eat and not be connected to you what if we, what if you start connecting to you too like to to sort of take the focus off the diet and help people learn to trust themselves more. Because as you know, diets teach you not to trust something. And as you know, deprivation or the anticipation of deprivation makes you want that thing more. So everyone, everyone is scared to give up dieting. And I always say, look, I'm not here to take dieting away from you. I'm not here to take binge eating away from you. You're going to give up both because as you step more into the curiosity about why you're doing what you're doing, and it's so easy to say you're an emotional eater, that's just too easy. Dig down. (laughs) What specifically is going on in that specific time? Was it deprivation? Was it something emotional? What's going on? And as they start getting more interested in themselves, how they think, what they feel, the how they treat themselves, they automatically give up dieting and the binge eating then abates as they resolve yeah. what's going on inside. 
Yeah, really meeting, like from the practitioner lens, meeting the client where they're at. And if they feel safe and in control with the diet at the moment, it's like, okay, well, let's figure out why, right? Why is that the form of safety or control that you are seeking and getting? It's not only just what's behind the binge, but what's behind what came before the binge and before that even. So I really like how this conversation has really highlighted the layers beneath the surface. And that that analogy you gave earlier about like the roots or like weeding, I use the like analogy of weeds in a garden all the time because some people will come into my practice and be like, all right, I'm ready to become an intuitive eater. I'm done dieting. Let's start listening to our body. And I'm like, well, you can totally plant the flowers of intuitive eating in your garden right now, but there are weeds. And unless we take the time to uproot the weeds, learn why the weeds were there in the first place and develop a toolbox to mitigate the weeds infiltrating your garden again, if, or I mean, honestly, when they arise again, then like really the, the flower bed, like is not going to be able to thrive. And so it's about going backwards, weeding the garden, getting the fresh soil out there and, and preparing and then planting the seeds to be able to like bloom into more of that, that, intuitive eating garden. I love the the metaphor, as like I said. And so I talk about that a lot because it's, we have to like really get into the roots of what led us here in the first place. And then how can we set a solid foundation for moving forward in ways where we don't have to rely on binge eating in order to feel safe and, and secure in our relationship with food or our body. I've loved this conversation. Thank you so much for sharing so much of this with with me and the listeners. If you could leave the listeners with one thing that's tangible that they can take away from this episode to help them work through that the subsequent emotional feelings that come after a binge, they can begin to cultivate more of that curiosity and put on the detective hat. What what tip might you leave them with? I would say if you wouldn't say something to a friend, a child, or someone you love, don't say it to yourself. If a friend of yours binged, I don't think you'd say, oh, you're disgusting. How could you do that? Oh my God. Oh, you're gross. Mm, mm, mm. So don't say that to yourself. Whatever you'd say to your friend, okay, why did it happen? It's okay. I love you. Like whatever, whatever it is, treat yourself with the warmth and compassion and interest and support as you would give a friend or someone you love, because you should be someone you love too. Oh, I love that. And they don't have to earn that love or they don't have to meet a certain amount of criteria in order to deserve that love. They just do because you love them. And that's, yeah, I love that. I love that tip. And treating yourself the way you want to be treated. It's like that whole uh, cliche of treat others the way you want to be treated. Treat yourself the way you you treat other people because if we wouldn't say it to a friend, then it doesn't align with our values and it's not something that is our truth, even if we've been made to believe it is. So that's a great tip to end with. Oh, I love this. Thank you so much for coming on. Why don't you share with the listeners a bit about where they can find you and connect with you? They can find me on drninainc.com, D-R-N-I-N-A-I-N-C.com. That's my website. And you can also connect with me on Instagram. I have two Instagrams, Psychoanalyst. I don't know why I chose that long one. And then the other It'll one- be, is, I'll be in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> the bit, And then the other one is The, bin, the Binge Cure. But every my radio show and everything else and- 
everything you might want to know about my books is all available on my website. My book, The Binge Cure, Seven Steps to Outsmart Emotional Eating is also available on Amazon. Yay. I will link all of those lovely things in the show notes below. Thank you again for being on here and we will connect again soon, I'm sure. I hope so. Thank you so much. This was a great conversation. Thanks everyone for giving this episode a listen. It is so fun to connect with Dr. Nina. She has been in this space for a very long time and it is just a pleasure to get to reconnect with her after she actually was there at the beginning of my own binge recovery journey. And so it is super great to share this information with you and all of her knowledge with you. And I hope that you felt you got some great value out of this episode. All of her links will be in the show notes below. And Dr. Nina actually just did a TEDx talk in California, and I will be linking it below for you. And I believe she let me know that her TEDx talk is called Why Binge Eating Isn't About Food, which is pretty much the overarching theme of this entire episode. So when it's out, which it'll be the beginning of April, which I think this episode will go up after that, it will be linked in the show notes. So go and enjoy that. And don't forget to check us out on Instagram at behind.the.binge. Let us know how you're feeling about the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. And otherwise, I will hopefully catch you in the next episode. Bye, everyone.